You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Matthew 25 is where we are, so you're going to need your Bible out on your lap. It'd really serve you. And we've got a lot of work to do, so you're going to have to, to work hard to, to stay up this morning. So Matthew 25. Um, we need to work on context real quick. So when you look down at your Bible, Matthew 25, we're going to be studying in the parable of the talents, starting in verse 14. But we need to make sure we see the context of Matthew 25. So we get that in verse 1, Matthew 25, verse 1. Do you see what it says there? Where um, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This is the context. He is telling us some parables in Matthew 25 about what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Okay, this is the this is the issue. What it looks like to live under the reign of God. What it looks like to live under the rule of God. Now, in light of that, he gives us two parables here. And the first parable, you might see it there in your Bible. It's it's over the heading. It says the parable of the ten virgins. Do you see that? Starting out in Matthew 25. And, and here's what's happening in this parable. It, it's used to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. So he's expressing, this is what it looks like in the kingdom of heaven. This is what life is like under my reign. So he gives this image in this parable of these 10 ladies who are waiting for their groom to come and get them. The groom is gone and he is actually delayed in coming back. He's coming back, but he's delayed in it. And, and so it's this picture of the church waiting for our groom, Jesus, to come back and get get us. Now, this is the picture we have unfolding in this first parable. And, and, but here's the problem of the parable is that five of these ladies, when the groom comes back, they're not ready for it. Their oil is not in their lamp. They're not ready to meet the groom. This is the problem. And, and so Jesus's point in this first parable on what the kingdom of God is like, he's saying this, I am delayed in coming back, but I am going to come back and get my church. I'm, I'm on the way I'm coming, but I am delayed. And in that delay church, you must stay ready. This is the point of the first parable is that you have to stay ready for Jesus to return. This is an obligation on behalf of all the Christians out there, all of his followers, that we have to stay ready for our groom to come back and get us. We have to be ready for the return. And so the problem in this parable is that half of the, the ladies are and half of the ladies aren't. And we want to be found in that crew that are. They were ready when they heard the voice of Jesus. Oil was in their lamp. They ran out to meet him and they were welcomed into his feast. But for the, for the ladies who weren't, they were shut out of the feast. It's a picture of, of God having to shut the door on, on men and women who, who are not ready to meet him. So the point is you have to stay ready. That's parable number one, what the kingdom of God is like. And then when you get to verse 14, it's parable number two. This is the parable of the talents. And here's what's going to happen in this parable. He's just said, you have to stay ready. Now, in the second parable, he is about to show you what it looks like to live well during the delay. What it looks like to live well as you're waiting for the, for the groom, Jesus, to come back for you. What it looks like to, to wait well. And here's what we're about to see in this parable. That waiting is an active thing. Waiting is active. It, wait, active waiting, the kind of the waiting that's about to be characterized here is a sort of waiting that, that as you and I are waiting for the return of Jesus, that, that we are committed to and caring for the causes and concerns of Jesus while we're here. Okay, this is what we're about to see, that the sort of waiting that characterizes that, that what would please God while, while we're waiting in the delay here it is an active waiting characterized by a concern for, a commitment to the cause of God. Okay, this is what we're about to see. So in verse 14, we're, we're going to pick it up. 
Verse 14 says this, for it, it is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So let me just start by identifying the major players in the parable. Player number one goes like this. We have got the owner. So in this parable, there is an owner. Okay, so we've got a man who goes on a long journey. And, and as he goes on the journey, he entrusts his property to some people. Okay, so, so here's what Jesus is saying. This is a huge deal that Jesus is announcing here. He's saying there is one owner. You're not it. I'm not it. There is one owner. The owner is God. It is Jesus, God in the flesh. That is the owner of all things. He owns everything. So whatever you want to think about right now that could be owned, he owns that thing. He, he is the ultimate owner. This is the first thing we have to see in this parable is Jesus is announcing that God, him, Jesus, God in the flesh is the owner of everything. Okay, now, if we just try to take the, the Bible all in from Genesis to Revelation, we're going to see this consistently taught throughout the scriptures. So let me just take a quick second to make a, big, a biblical case for this on God being the owner of everything. So let's start in Genesis 1.1. This is going to be up on the screen for you. Genesis 1.1, here's what we read. The, the opening line in the Bible goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, now, one of the implications of God creating is that God actually owns what he's created. So in saying that, that God created the heavens and the earth, and that, that is implying this, that in light of him creating it, he owns it all. So Genesis 1.1 is by implication teaching, Jesus is the creator and the owner of everything. But the Bible gets really explicit along the way in this. So Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. I mean, it's just trying to throw like, adjective over adjective on this to describe that he owns everything. So heaven and, and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Deuteronomy 10 is teaching God owns everything. There is nothing on the planet that God doesn't own. He doesn't lay his right to. Um, coming down, this is Leviticus 25, 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. You're saying you want to talk about land. You want to talk about your house. You want to talk about your possessions. They're all mine. They're not yours. They're mine. That's who they are. Uh, it keeps going. Job 41, um, 11. Who is first given to me that I should repay him? So in other words, can we put God in our debt is the question. Can, can God ever be in our debt? The re response, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's hard to be in debt when you own everything, isn't it? You can't be in debt if it's all yours. That's the point. He owns everything. There's nothing that we can talk about that God doesn't lay right to, that he doesn't own. Psalms um, 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So it's saying in light of him creating it, he owns it all. He owns it all. He created it and therefore he owns it. Um, a real, this is a fairly uh, popular, well-known verse. Psalms 50 verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. 
Everything is God's. This is what it's teaching here. The Bible, it's full scope is saying that God is the owner. There's only one owner. His name is God. That's it. That that is the owner of everything. I like what theologian Abraham Kuyper, he expressed it this way. In light of of these passages and, and the biblical narrative and how it plays out, he says, in the total expanse of human life, So when we just look around and we just start seeing stuff in the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who is alone sovereign, does not declare that is mine. This is what it means for God to own everything, that he would look at every single thing on the planet, in the universe, and look at that and say, every square inch of that thing, that is mine. He would look at you and say, you are mine. I, this is the teaching of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you uh, have from God? And, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, if you're, if you're a person, a human being, you're God's because God created you. He owns you because he created you. He's got right to you. But if you're a Christian, you are doubly God's. Not only were you created by God, but you were redeemed by God. He's bought you twice. You are fully his. This is the point that everything is God's. There is one owner and that owner is God. This is the point. God, Jesus, God in the flesh is the owner of all things. So here's player number one. God owns it all. He's the owner. Now here's the second one. So we've got an owner and then we've got the stewards. So there are owners and there are stewards in this parable. So if you look at verse 14, um, they're called servants. So before this guy leaves to go on this journey, he takes it, he calls his servants to himself and he entrusts some of what he owns to them. So he's the owner. They're the servants. He entrusts some of what he has and he gives it to them, making them stewards. Are we following here? Okay, so think about what a steward is. A steward is a person who who has been given something by God. And now God is looking at them and saying, now you leverage what I have given you for my plans and my purposes. Okay, this is what it means to be a steward. Let me give you a a, a definition that just kind of will help bring some some, uh, unity to this. Okay, so here's a definition of what it means to be a steward. This will be on the screen for you. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. Okay, this is what a steward is. A steward is a person who God has given something to or the owner has given something to. It's not theirs. It's, it's, it's the master's. So the master, the owner has given it to them. He's essentially, it's on loan to them. He's entrusted wealth or property or something to them. And now that master would expect that steward to take what he has loaned them and use it for his best interest. Okay. This is what a steward is. They're loaned something and the person they loan it for expects them now to use what he has loaned them for, for his cause, for his concerns, for his plans, for his purposes. This is a steward. Are, are, we, are we following that? Now, let me just make the, the, kind of the biblical case for stewardship. It's, it's all throughout the Bible as well. Stewardship is everywhere. And so it, it starts in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. It's all his. Genesis 1.27. He created man and, and woman. They're his. So everything's his. Man, woman's his. 
creation, everything is his. And, and then you get to, to uh, Genesis 2.15, and here's what we find. That God has put the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, our first parents, into the garden. And he has given them a role, a job to do with his creation, what he has entrusted to them. He tells them in Genesis 2.15 that you are to work it and to keep it. You're to work it and to keep it. So he is, he's entrusted something to them, a garden. And now he's saying, you take this garden and you use it, develop it, cultivate it for my interest, for my agenda. You use what I've entrusted to you to advance my cause and my concern. Okay, now when he says, I want you to work it and to keep it, that does not mean that, that God is looking at Adam and Eve and saying, I just want you to protect it. I want you to keep something from happening, happening to it. That's not what it means to be a steward. A steward does more than keeping something from happening to it. A steward actually does something with it. They make something happen with it. This is what it means to work it and to tend it, to keep it. It, It's not just protecting it. It's not just keeping something from happening to it. It's actually making something happen with it. Okay, so this is what it means to be a steward. The God has entrusted something to you and he is saying, now make something happen with it that would be in alignment with my kingdom purposes, with my kingdom causes. I've entrusted this to you. It's on loan to you. Now you leverage what I have given you for my purposes. Now in this way, okay, I want you to see this. In this way, stewardship is not like a thing that we do. It is who we are. If you're a Christian, if you're a human being, you are a steward. God's the owner. You're the servant. He's entrusted to his servant certain things that now he holds you responsible for. He's given you a job to do with it. So a steward is the es- a stewardship is the essence of who we are. A steward is the essence. It's, it's what life is for us. It, it's, it's bottom line levels of reality. God's the owner. We're the servants. He's entrusted us certain things to leverage and to use for his agenda. Okay, now in light of that, let me just stop and ask this question. Is this how you see life? Do you see life this way? God's the owner. You're the servant. He's entrusted certain things to you. That makes you a steward. See, when you think about your house, is it your house? Is it your car? Is it your bank account? Is it your family? Are they your kids? Now, there is a sense that you could say yes to all of that, but there is an ultimate sense that we have to say no to all of that. That none of those things are ours. That your kids are not your kids. They're God's. Your family is not your family. It's God's. That your house is not your house. It is God's house. And if we get those two things reversed, if we start thinking that these things are primarily mine and not primarily God's, we've got a huge problem. A huge problem. So are you seeing life this way? That everything that God has given you is God's. It's on loan to you. That's all it is. So so we've got player number one. There there is an owner. His name is God. We've got player number two. There are stewards. That's you and I. And then we've got player number three, this idea of talents. That there are talents. Now look at verse 15. So we've got three people, and these three people are each entrusted differing levels of talents. One's got five, one's got two, one's got one talent. And it says in verse 15, 15, each according to their capacity. Okay, so the question is, what are talents? Now, there's no doubt in this, in this passage that, that talents deal with money and possessions primarily. Okay, so in this illustration that Jesus is using, he is using money and possessions to describe what it means to be a good steward. 
So talents specifically in this passage mean money and possessions. But talents, broadly speaking, are much bigger than money and possessions. It's partly money and possessions, but it's bigger than money and possessions. So when we start talking about what God has entrusted to stewards, he's the owner, given things on loan to you and I. When we start talking about what he has loaned to you and I, I think it's, if you think of it in big categories, we could probably put it in three kind of um, buckets. Here's bucket number one. We could think of it in terms of time. Like part of what God has entrusted to you is time. Time is precious, isn't it? I mean, just blink and watch 10 years go by and see if it's not precious. Time is a precious thing. See, time has opportunities in it. That, that when you miss them, they're squandered and you can't get those opportunities back. So, so time is a precious gift from God that he has stewarded to you. He's entrusted to you, on loan to you. And, and then he's saying, now you need to leverage your time for my kingdom purposes. So, so it would encompass opportunities. I, um, Acts 17 is going to say that God has specifically placed you in this time, 2012, in your neighborhood with your neighbor. See, that's an opportunity. That would be under time. He has entrusted your neighborhood to you, your specific neighbors to you. He's entrusted those to you to get to know, to have a, kind of across the dinner table relationships, to have gospel conversation with. Like he's entrusted that to you. That's, that's time. That's opportunity. And he wants you to, he's on loan to you and he wants you to leverage it for his kingdom purposes. So, so time is a part of that. Treasure is a part of that. That's the money and possession thing. That is your bank account. That is your cars. That is your home. They're not yours. They're God's. They're on loan to you to be used for his purposes. You don't own them. God owns them. You're the steward of them. So you've got treasure. And then you've got, um, we could kind of use this idea of talent. Now I'm using talent in two different ways, so don't let this confuse you. When we're reading Matthew 25, we're talking about talent in a big kind of way. Now, and then we're talking about what is a talent. It, it, you might could think of it in time. You might could think of it in treasure. And we use the talent underneath the big level talent. We're talking about capacities, how God has gifted you. I, across this room, there are all sorts of giftings that God has given. Some of you are really, really smart. Some of us aren't real smart. Now, for the people that are really smart in the room, do you know that you didn't get like a pre-birth checklist? I mean, you know that, right? That, that before you were born, before you even thought about by your mom and dad, that there wasn't a moment where God looked at you and said, okay, hey, here's a list of the things that you can have. Now you select your top five and I'll give them to you. That's not how it works. See, if you've got a brain that actually works well, here's what you need to know about that brain. It's on loan from God to you. See, if you've got business savvy, if you've got some leadership ability, if you've got the gift of service, whatever sort of spiritual giftings, capacities, things that God has given you in the realm of talents, that is entrusted to you by God. That's loaned to you by God. It's not yours. That's the point. It feels like ours, doesn't it? Your brain feels like, but it's not yours. It's God. It's on loan to you to steward. Okay, now, so when we're talking talents, you can think of it in terms of time, talent, and treasure. But, but let me just make this point from a 30,000 foot level. It's everything. It's your family. It's your car. It's your house. It's your job. It's your clothes. It's everything that you have entrusted to you by God, loaned to you to leverage for his purposes, his kingdom agenda. We see in the picture here. Here, the three players are showing us something. There's an owner, 
They're stewards, and then God has trusted some things to, in, to us to leverage for His causes, His concerns, His plans, and His purposes. Okay, now, then you get to verse 16. Look at verse 16, 17, 18. We see how they've leveraged them. So in, in verse 16, 17, and 18, we see that the guy with five turned it into five more. So now he has 10. The person with two turned it into four. He doubled it. And then you got the person with one. And there's this word, but in verse, uh, in verse 18, it's, it's signaling a contrast. You've got two who did well, but this guy, he did not do well. He went to his backyard. He dug a hole. He stuck what God gave him into the hole and squandered it. Okay. This is guy three. Okay. Now look at verse 19 and here's what we need to know. In light of there being an owner, there being stewards, and there being talents, here's what we need to know from verse 19. That one day, all stewards will answer to the master. One day, all stewards, you and I, are going to answer to the master with how we have used what he has loaned us. So look at verse 19. And let this sober you. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and, and he settled accounts with them. Reading this this week um, was just an interesting thing. I think it just allowed, the Spirit was gracious just in allowing that to settle over my heart and in a really sobering way to know that there will be a day where I stand before God and he says, in light of what I have entrusted to you, Rodney, a family, your brain, your time, your treasure, your t- all, in light of what I've entrusted to you, what have you done with that? Let's walk through what you've done with that, how, how you've stewarded that. That day is coming for you. There will be a day where God meddles in your life, where all of your life is under the direct gaze of God, and you give an account for how you have used what he has loaned to you. Now look at me right in the eye here. There will be a day where verse 19, where you're living it before God, giving an account for all that he's entrusted to you. That, that day's coming for you, for me. Let that sober you for a second. That day is coming for us. Okay, now in light of that, we need, we need to read the next few verses, 20 and on, really carefully because Jesus is about to show us what he wants from his servants when we stand before him in verse 19. I mean, he's about to make it as clear to you. There will not be one person in the room when we stand before God that aren't totally in the know on what Jesus wants from us in light of this, in light of him entrusting these things to us. So we need to read these verses carefully, knowing that there will be a day where the the master comes back from his journey and, and, and you're before him, I'm before him, and we're giving an account for how we've used his stuff. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, there will be some of us, or actually all of us, we're going to fit into one of two categories when we stand before God in verse 19. 
One of two categories, you, me, everyone in the room, one of two categories when we give an account. Some of us will be in category one that goes like this, that you'll steward what God's entrusted to you. You'll be in the category like our first two servants who takes what God has given them, recognizes that it's on loan from God to them, and you'll leverage that for kingdom purposes. You'll do with those things what God would want you to do with those things. That's category number one, that you'll get this response from Jesus. Right? When you, like our first servant, five goes to ten, second servant, two goes to four, you'll get this response from Jesus to those who steward what he's entrusted to them well. Look at this response. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you, uh, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the response you want from Jesus, right? That's the response I want from Jesus. And he's showing us here that this is what it means, that you have to steward what he has given you well. You have to steward it well. That God has entrusted to you. He has loaned you things for you to advance his cause, his concerns. Okay, now let me just clarify. This does not equal salvation by stewardship. Salvation is always by grace, but salvation always shows itself in good stewardship. See, if you're actually concerned for the kingdom of God, it shows that you actually love the king. See, salvation always shows itself in good stewardship. Okay, now I want you to notice this in this parable. And some of us need to hear this and just relax and rest in this. One of these guys is entrusted with five talents. He makes five more. One of them is entrusted with two. He makes two more. They each got differing amounts. And they each made differing amounts. But yet God gave both of them the same commendation. Are you seeing that? So, okay, hear this. Some of us in the room, we are one talent people. And it's perfectly fine that we're a one talent person. Maybe we're one talent in our leadership ability. Maybe we're one talent in what God has entrusted to us with money and possessions. Maybe we're going to be one talent in the amount of time and opportunities that God gives us. Here's the key, though. The the issue is not how much God has entrusted to you. The issue is what you're doing with what God has entrusted to you. See, God is not holding these people accountable based on the level of capacity they have. He's holding them accountable based on how they leverage their capacity for his concerns. Are we are we seeing that? The issue is not, do you have $50,000 or $3 billion? The issue is what you're doing with what God has given you. The issue is not if you're the next Winston Churchill, or if you're just an average guy that's just going to be a good husband and do your thing. The issue is, what are you doing with what God has given you? That's the issue. God's holding us accountable based on how we leverage the capacity that he has entrusted to us for his causes and his concerns. And two of these guys did great. They immediately went, leveraged everything that God had entrusted to them, used it to multiply the kingdom. They were involved in in the expansion of the gospel. This is the imagery. They're involved in gospel expansion, the good of the church, the expansion of the kingdom of God. They're leveraging everything for that. They get the commendation, but that's not the only category we've got here. We've got another category and and rather than stewarding what God entrusted to, to, to him, this is the category of people that you'll bury what God's entrusted to you. 
That, that you'll bury it. I'll bear it. We'll bury what God has entrusted to us. Now, now read this starting in verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have, here, you have what is yours. I'm giving you the talent back, he's saying. But his master answered him, you wicked and you slothful servant. Now let that sober you. No, no commendation there. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Okay, can I, can I point out here that this man didn't murder anyone. He didn't kill anybody. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, you wicked and you slothful servant. See, it's not just like we have this list of things that we're not doing. See, in this passage, what sin equals is neglecting to leverage the time, the talent, and the treasure that God has given you in God's purposes. That's the sin. This man is called wicked and slothful because his life characterized that he was about his own agenda, living for his own purposes, not the kingdom of God, that he neglected God's purposes with what God had entrusted to him. That's the sin in this passage. This is the problem of the passage. The whole point of the parable is to say, don't be like this man who neglected what God God had, God had loaned to him who neglected leveraging that for God's concerns. Don't be like this. Don't bury your treasure. This is the point. Okay, now I, I want to talk about burying treasure just for a few minutes here. I want to answer three questions that revolve around this idea of burying treasure. Okay, here, here's the first one. Why did the man bury it? Why, why did he bury it? Um, I think verse 25 is like a huge pivotal kind of four, like the first four words are four really important um, words in this parable. Okay, you look at verse 25, first four words. So I was afraid. See, here was this guy's problem. He had a wrong view of God. That was his problem. See, there is a healthy fear that would move and motivate a person. And then there is an unhealthy fear of God that would paralyze a person. He had a, a bad view of God. misconceptions abound in his view of God. Okay, now, and here's the case I want to make. That that misconception caused him to fear God. Okay, now, now here's the thing that I I want to try to get at on why you and I like to bury the time, talents, and treasures that God has given us. I think it primarily centers on the fact that we have a wrong view of God that makes us fearful. Okay, now let me clarify this. I don't think it's this guy's fear. I think it's the opposite end of this guy's fear. See, this guy's um, wrong view of God caused him to look at God and say, oh my God, he might kill me someday. I mean, he's going to, he's going to wipe me off the face of the planet. See, it it caused him to have that fear of God. And I think it's different in our culture because I think in their culture, generally a transcendent God who was holy and righteous and, and wrathful was normal. It permeated how they thought about God. But see, I think our culture is a little bit different. I think our culture, if we have a, a view of God that permeates kind of how we think about him, it's a God that is near and friendly. And so I think our, our misconception of God goes on the other side. So, so I think for us in the room, when it comes to fear and why it is that we bury treasure, I think it works like this. That we're not afraid of what God will do to us and that leads us to bury our treasure. I think the issue, now listen to this real closely. 
I think the issue is we're afraid of what God won't do for us. So the issue isn't, I don't think for most of us in the room, the issue isn't what God is going to do to us. I think we're fearful of what God won't do for us. And let me explain this. I'm just going to apply it to money and possessions. There is something deep down in every person's heart that craves some fundamental things. This is in you. This is in me. This is part of what it means to be human. And God has actually put it there for a reason. So so I'll just describe these three fundamental needs like this. There is a need for security. There is a need for satisfaction and joy and happiness. And and there is this need for significance. Now, those three things are are imprinted upon the soul of every human being. And they're, you know, they're, they're given by God to actually lead you to God. That's the ironic thing. That God imprints those upon your soul and upon my soul so that we'll look at everything in the world and realize there's nothing here that can satisfy any of those things. And it should lead us to God who alone can provide them. So so there is a sense in which through the Bible and the work of Jesus, God looks at you and says, listen, I will satisfy the deepest aches in your soul for satisfaction. I'll do that for you. This is why um, 1 Peter 2 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Good is another way of saying he is satisfying. He he will satisfy that craving for something in your soul. He'll satisfy that. See, here's what our problem comes to in money and possessions. Look at the way you spend money and ask yourself this question. Does it give great evidence that you really don't believe what God said he'll do for you? And I think the answer for most of us is is the way we spend gives great evidence so we really don't believe that God will come through on that promise that he can really satisfy us. So what we need is God plus the next gadget. What we need is God plus the next house. What we need is God plus the newer car. What we need is is God plus this this thing over here, this this new toy. I mean, if you'll just look at your your purchases, ask yourself the question, why are you buying them? Nine out of ten things you're buying, you don't need. See, it's telling us something. See, it's, it's this opposite side. That I think we're fearful that God won't do for us what he's promised to do for us. That he'll actually satisfy us. Let's take security. God promises that he is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He numbers your days, my days. He is the sustainer of the universe. Your heart's beating right now because God's telling it to, telling it to beat. Right? If he takes his hands off the wheel, the universe goes into chaos to, like today. So, so now here's the beautiful news of the gospel. That he's not only sovereign, but because of the work of Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus, he also promises to be a good dad for you. So he has promised to leverage all of his power and might, his sovereignty, for your benefit. That's a great promise. But now ask yourself the question. In the way that you think about money and possessions... Does it give evidence that you really don't believe that God will do for you what he said he will do? That he'll be your security? See, I think the reason a lot of us like to pack things in and save things and kind of build a bunker around our money and possessions is because we really believe this, that for our security to really be there, what we really need is God plus a big savings account, plus an emergency fund, plus this retirement account, plus this thing, that thing, and that thing. And then we'll be secure. It's a mirage. Those things don't provide you security. Only God can provide you security. Okay, let, let's take the, the, the craving in every one of our heart for significance. Every person in this room wants to be somebody. Every one of us. You do, I do, we all do. 
God has put that deep in the soul of you and I. And here's the great news. Because of the work of Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, God promises this. I will make you a somebody. Not, not in a worldly sense, but I will make you a somebody. Romans 8 says it like this. When you place your faith in Jesus, here's what God does. He adopts you into the family and you are now co-heirs with your elder brother, Jesus. That's the sort of somebody that he has made you. Okay, but, but here's our problem when it comes to money and possessions. Is we spend money and acquire things in order to be a somebody. Like, ask yourself the question. Do, do I give evidence in the way I spend money, money and possessions? Is it showing evidence that I really don't believe God will give me the significance that I was made for? What I need is to get, to get the significance through acquiring things. So just think of it this way. The cars we drive, the houses we live in. If, if you were to start driving a 1991 Ford Probe tomorrow, like one headlight doesn't even work. Like it's the kind that come up, but only one comes up. Your tent's falling off the window, like three wheels don't, I mean, they're out of alignment. You're just wobbling down the road. You can't go more than 25 miles an hour at any time. Now, if you pulled in with that car in the parking lot, ask yourself the question, how do you feel when you get out of it? How do you feel? And you know how I think most of us feel? Like a loser. And you know why that is? Because we're looking to money and possessions to things for our significance. Now, just apply this to your purchases and see if it doesn't give evidence to, to us not believing in God for what he has promised to do for us. So, so rather than believing that God will make us a somebody, we're trying to buy things to be a somebody. Do you see how that, I mean, we're, this is all, this is me too. This isn't just a you thing, a him thing. This is an all of us thing. That, that for all of us in the room, it is scary to think how tightly our security, our significance, and our satisfaction is tied to money and possessions. See, just like this man, we're afraid. We have this misconception of God, and we're afraid that God actually won't do for us what he said he'll do for us. So, so what leads us to bury? We're, we're really fearful. We're really fearful that God will come through for us like he promises to do. All right? Okay, so, so let's get the next question. That's why we bury it. The next question is, how do we bury it? How do we bury it? I think there's two ways that you can bury, like this man, two ways you can bury the, the talents and the treasure and, and the time that God has given you. Two ways to bury it. One is by playing not to lose. One is by playing not to lose. This is the fearful person. This is the guy that, that he thinks he's got to like put, make a bunker around his life and just maintain and protect all that God has given him. So, so this is your play it not to lose guy. So let me just apply this kind of to time, talents, and treasure. So let's talk about time. This is the guy playing not to lose. So let's talk about gospel opportunities in your neighborhood. That God's put you in your neighborhood to get to know your neighbors, across the dinner table conversation with your neighbor, gospel conversation with your neighbor. He's put you in your neighborhood for that. But what keeps you from doing that? Playing not to lose. Fearful. Like, what are they going to say if we do that? Like, what, what, how's that going to go if we invite them into our house? How's that going to go if we actually start like, actually getting to know our neighbors that God has in his providence put us there to get to know? How's that going to go if we do that? If we talk about Jesus, are they going to think we're a, a kook? I mean, some crazy guy? I mean, how's that going to go? See, this is the play it not to lose with time. The same thing happens with our talents, the capacities that God has given you. See, what keeps a lot of us from, from living in the capacities that God has given us goes like this. We're scared of what people are going to think if we actually try to do that. So if we actually try to move forward in the giftings that God's given us, we might fail. You know what? You very well may fail. 
And can I just say that's perfectly fine? It is perfectly fine. But see, we put a bunker around this as if the worst thing in the world is not to fail. See, in this parable, the worst thing in the world is not to use your gifts for the kingdom of God. Not, you see that? The worst thing in the world is not for somebody to think you're crazy. It's to squander those opportunities. Let's talk about this with money and possessions. See, a lot of us have a bunker that's 10 miles deep around our, our money and possessions. And we've got our money and possessions at the bottom of that. Thinking that our goal is to keep it there, to maintain it, to protect it. Your goal is not to protect your money and possessions. It's to leverage it for kingdom purposes. See, this is the problem with our man in the parable. He thought the goal was to protect his money and possessions, to bury his talent so he could give exactly what Jesus gave to him back to Jesus. And that is not pleasing to God. For you to think that if I neglect leveraging these gifts and abilities and talents for the kingdom of God, if you're thinking that if I just protect them so I can give what God has given to me back to him, if you're thinking God is going to be pleased with that, read this. He's not. He calls it sin. Now let that sober you for a second. See, if we're playing not to lose, Jesus is not pleased with that. He calls that neglectful sin. That needs to be repented of. So see, one way you can bury your treasure is playing not to lose. Here's the next way you can bury your your treasure. You can bury it by using God's resources for the wrong agenda. Using God's resources for the wrong agenda. So so you're you're the guy that's risking. You've got talents and gifts and things that God has blessed you with. And you are leveraging those things to the hilt. You're not playing not to lose. You're playing to win. The problem is you're playing to win the wrong game. You're playing to win a game that has nothing to do with the kingdom purposes of God. Nothing to do with the cause and concerns of God. You're just playing to win the wrong game. Listen, it's just another way of bearing the treasure. It's just got a lot of busyness and buzz about it because you're doing a lot of stuff. But in the same way, Jesus is looking at the person who, who would spend all of his resources on their own agendas, their own things, their own desires, their own family. See, what's at the center of you is you. What's at the center of you is what you want, what you desire, what, what your family needs. What, that's at the center of you, not the kingdom of God. And if, if anything other than the kingdom of God and his kingdom purposes are at the center of how you're thinking about money and possessions, we're, doing the, we're just bearing it in a different way. But we're still bearing it. We're just spending it all on ourselves as we bury it. We're squandering it just the same. Okay, so, so here, I, I want to take a second and... Uh, and try to address, and um, I'm going to plead with you to consider something. Because there's only one way I know of, and I'm going to apply this specifically to money and possessions. There's only one way I know of that you can make sure you're not using all of your money and possessions for the wrong things. That you're not using it in the wrong way. That you're actually, maybe say this positively, there's only one way I know of that you can actually, at the end of the day, stand before Jesus and say, I've leveraged this well for you. This is the only way I know to do it is there has to be thought into what it looks like for you to limit your lifestyle. You have to think about that. I have to think about that. Okay, now consider this scenario. See, in a real sense, you are a middleman. You're not the end game here. So what God entrusts to you, listen, it's not meant to terminate on you. All of that stuff is not meant to be yours. See, God wants to give you plenty as a middleman to do your thing as a middleman. 
But the middleman's goal is to deliver God's goods to someone else. Are you seeing that scenario? See, so you've got to think about what God has given to you. So maybe you can think of it this way. There's a sense in which God has given you one of his accounts, one of his bank accounts, one of his money and possessions accounts. He's given that to you. And he's actually said, okay, this is my account, but I'm going to write your name across it because you're going to be the manager of this account. But see, as the middleman, you've got to figure this out. What in there should be used for, for my things Things I would need, my family would need. And what in in this account that is all God's stuff is meant to be used for other things, not me. See, you've got to have a you've got to have an answer for that. I've got to have an answer for that. Because here's what happens to every one of us in the room. Now, I pray that God would give us some clarity on this. Think about what happens when you get a raise. If if and when you get a raise, you know what happens? Let's say you get a 10% raise tomorrow. You know what happens when you get a raise? Your lifestyle immediately swells to that raise. It immediately does that. So you get a 20% raise, your lifestyle just swells by 20%. You get a 40% raise, it swells by 40%. You just swell to what, what your raise is. You can't do that and be a good steward. This is the point. You can't do that and be a good steward. You've got to figure out what it looks like to take that raise and leverage it for what you need and the kingdom purposes. You've got to figure that out. See, this is why, this is why the common thread, and let's just say through, well, I'm going to apply this specifically to just run of the mill, kind of middle class people. This is the common thread. This is the common response to money and possessions and what it looks like to leverage it for the kingdom. I don't have disposable income, so how am I supposed to do that? I mean, I, like my bills go here and this is where I am. I'm here. So there's like, there's no gap there. See, here's what happens. It's because we swell our lifestyle to what God's entrusted to us. See, and so, now here's the thing for everyone in the room. And by the way, that's why you can be broke on $50,000 and you can be broke on $500,000 because our lifestyles can swell to whatever that account says. So here's what we all have to do. We have to, God's not holding, if, if God has entrusted you with a $50,000 account, he's not holding you accountable for a $500,000 account. Not for what you don't have. He's actually holding you accountable for the account he's assigned to you. And what your job and my job is, is to take that account and ask this question. In light of what you have entrusted to me, what does it look like for me to live below my means, set my salary, cap my life, so that now I can actually give the kingdom purposes? This is for all, I mean, that's hard, isn't it? That feels hard. To be a good steward, you have to do this and I have to do this. We have to figure out what it looks like in light of what God has given us to say, my bills have to come below what God has assigned to me in this account. They have to do that or else I cannot be a servant one or servant two that is commended. Okay, so let me just read this um, quote by Randy Alcorn as he tries to encourage this idea of setting your salary as a middleman. Can you listen to what he says? He says, the owner, God, has put each of our names on his account. We have unrestricted access to it, a privilege that is subject to abuse. See, when God just signs over his account, it's subject to a lot of abuse. Okay, so he goes on. As his money managers, God trusts us to set our own salaries. We can draw needed funds from his wealth to pay our living expenses. One of our central, now listen to this, one of our central spiritual decisions is determining what's a reasonable amount to live on. 
One of your central spiritual decisions is that. Whatever that amount is, and it will legitimately vary from person to person. So hear that. Nobody's out to create a rule for you. It's going to vary from person to person in this room. Yours may be different from mine, maybe different from the next person. So whatever that amount is, we shouldn't hoard or waste the excess. If we hoard or waste the excess, we are the, the, the third servant. The slothful and wicked servant going on here. After all, it is his, not ours. And he has something to say about where to put it. The money manager has legitimate needs and the owner is generous. And aren't we glad the owner's generous, huh? He doesn't demand that his stewards live in poverty and he doesn't resent us for making reasonable expenditures on ourselves. But suppose the owner sees us living luxuriously in a mansion, driving only the best cars and flying only first class. Now, That's his illustrations. I don't know what they would be for you. But here's the point. Isn't there a point where as stewards, we can cross the line of a reasonable expense? The answer is yes. You can cross the line. I can cross the line. We can all cross the line from being faithful stewards who are spending, who are taking care of the needs that God has given us with what he has entrusted to us and us being slothful and wicked servants who are using it all for our own agenda. There is a line there that we all have to discern what that line is. Won't the owner call us to account for squandering money that's not ours? Answer is yes, he will. For me, for you, for us, for our church family, he will call us into account for that. And we're all going to have to give an account for how we have leveraged what he's entrusted to us. Here's the third question. So why did he bury it? Fear, how did he bury it? Playing not to lose, using God's resources for his agenda. And the last one, the result of him bearing it. Let this sober you here. Verse 28. Here are the result of, of him bearing, him neglecting this be a good steward. So this third steward, he says this, verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to, to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and, and will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this makes sense to everyone in the room. So if I just pose you this scenario, if you're going to give money to two investors, here's investor one, here's investor two. You give them money at the end of the year, you loop back around. How did we do in our investments? Guy number one comes to you and says, we worked hard. We invested wisely this year and we doubled your money this year. Can you believe that? You're going to look at him and think, okay, that's great. I love that. And then steward number, or this investor number two looks back at you and says, man, we had a terrible year. You say, well, why is that? And let's just say he gives you one of two reasons. Let's say reason one is, he, he says this, well, you're not going to believe this, but I actually forgot to invest your money. The check is laying on my counter. I just forgot about it. Or let's say he says this. And, and this is just two ways of bearing the treasure. Or he says this, um, you know, um, this year I, I figured out that I wanted um, some new things. And so I actually had to take some of that money that you'd given me to invest for you. And I actually had to grab most of that so, so I could get some of these new things. Now, if, if you're the guy that, that allowed these two people to invest, what are you going to do? You know, it's simple for me. I'm taking whatever is left in that account, investor number two, and I'm giving it all to investor number one, who is actually working hard and investing wisely with what I've entrusted to him. And this is what Jesus is saying. So will I. So will I. If you're the person that at the end of the day is squandering what I've given you, then there will be a day in this life or when Jesus, when you stand before Jesus, when everything is taken from you and it will be given to the one who has done well with it. Now let that sober you for a second. I mean, those are the options there. 
Okay, now, now keep reading here. This is the ultimate result. Verse 30. Jesus goes on to say this, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, isn't this ironic? Can you see how tightly that our stewardship of what God has entrusted to us is tied to our faith in Jesus? Can you see how tightly this is? Jesus is saying for this third man, he is, he is no son of mine. He is no daughter of mine. He's not a part of my family. See, there is a huge warning that Jesus is giving here. See, if you're not stewarding what God has entrusted to you for his kingdom purposes, guess what that means? It means you probably don't know the king. If you are not stewarding what he has entrusted to you for gospel expansion, guess what that means? That you probably don't know the gospel. So let me be clear. It's not salvation by stewardship. It's salvation by grace. But that salvation always shows itself in a concern for the Savior's agenda. See, if we don't have a concern for the agenda, if all of, if all of what he's entrusted to us is being squandered on, on us, if, if we're playing not to lose, if we're using all of his resources on our agenda, it's saying something here. There's a huge warning here. So I hope you can hear this warning. That Jesus is saying, you might need to check if you're actually a son or daughter of mine. So, so this will leave us with, um, I think, a big decision. And I think the decision sounds like this. What do you need to be doing in the delay to be a good steward? What, what do you need to be doing? So, so let's just push pause here. And may, maybe you are not a Christian. You're in the room. Here is the great news of the gospel is this doesn't have to be your story, the third servant. It doesn't have to be your story. The, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus died in your place on the cross so, so that you don't have to have the condemnation of God. You can actually get the commendation of God. That there is abundant mercy and grace to save. There is abundant mercy and grace to rescue. And that mercy and grace is available today. Can I just encourage you? Don't delay that. You don't know when the master's coming home. You don't know when he's coming back to settle accounts. And you don't want to be like this third steward, this third servant, who was not ready to meet Jesus when he came back. So, so don't delay. If, if this is the moment where God is stirring up in you faith in him and you want to put, put your faith in him, trust and treasure him, then make this today to nail that down. But, but for Christians in the room, here's the question I think every one of us need to ask. What needs to change right now in our life to be a good and faithful steward? What needs to change in terms of your talents and capacities and abilities that God's given you? In, in terms of your time and opportunity, your neighborhood, in terms of your money and possessions? What needs to happen for you not to be squandering what God has entrusted to you? And, and I want to finish by pointing to Jesus. There is a sense in which this passage, more than it's telling you what you need to do, it's telling you what Jesus has done for you. That there is a sense in which Jesus is the ultimate steward. God, the Father, has entrusted his son Jesus with a mission of redemption. And aren't we glad that God, Jesus, didn't squander his time, talent, and treasure, but he perfectly invested it into what God had called him to do. So he set his eyes directly on the cross. 
And he ran toward it with everything in him, saying no to every competing cause, saying no to every competing agenda, saying no to every other priority, every other purpose, eyes fixed on the cross. And here's the good news for all of us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus turned his five talents into 10, didn't he? He was beaten beyond recognition. He was nailed to a cross for your sin, for my sin, so that we could be saved. Amen? And there is a sense in which this is going to be true for every one of us. If we're ever going to be great stewards, these great stewards that God is saying you need to become, that is only going to happen when you see and you are wrecked by how Jesus has been a perfect steward for you. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a second to sit under that and to allow the Holy Spirit to wipe away anything that wasn't helpful and to imprint upon your soul anything that needs to stay there and needs to stick. And we're going to finish by responding um, in song. We're going to have the guys lead us and we're going to have some home group leaders on each of the side of the room and I'll be up on the front left. And um, if, you, if you want to know Jesus, you want to trust and treasure him, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you need to be prayed over this morning, we'd love to be able to do that for you. So, so those guys are there to serve you. If there's anything they can do for you, um, you're welcome to come over and, and meet with them on the side of the room. So, so God, we want, to, uh, we, we want to invite you into our life, to meddle in our life. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room, for our church family, that we would be found faithful when verse 19 happens, when you settle accounts. And God, I pray that, that we would be the sort of stewards that turn your one talent, your two talents, your five talents, whatever you've entrusted to us, into more. And God, that, that one day we would get the, the well done, good and faithful servant. So God, I pray for great help in that. It's going to take great grace for us to get there. And God, I pray by your grace that you'd move us to that end. It's in your good name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.